mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Morning America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. Julia Glass is the author of Vigil Harbor, a novel. 
Julia is the author of six previous books of fiction, including the best-selling Three Junes, winner of the National Book Award, and I See You Everywhere, winner of the Binghamton University John Gardner Fiction Book Award. Other published works include the Kindle, Single, Chairs, and the Rafters, and essays in several anthologies. A recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York Foundation for the Arts, and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, Glass is a distinguished writer-in-residence at Emerson College. She lives with her family in Marblehead, Massachusetts. Welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you, Zibby. I have to tell you, I'm sure you don't remember this, but... About, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. When did Three Junes come out? 20 years ago this past May. Oh, so, see, so I was yeah. right. So I went to an event in Brooklyn at someone's house and you were there. There were like two or three tables and I sat at your table oh. and I'm like the biggest fan of Three Junes ever. And it Thank was you. me and all these moms and I did not have kids then. And the whole time, really? everyone, everyone was talking about schools and this and that. And I was like, I don't even understand what everyone's talking about. I just <laughs> want to talk about the book. <laughs> oh, so that must have been at my agent, Gail Hockman's house in Park Slope. That I'm thinking good. that's when it was. Wow. Wow. Well, you have a good memory. <laughs> I sort of remember that dinner. But you're right. Oh. If there if there are moms, what do we talk about? We don't talk about books. I mean, we do, but we but we got to get the mom stuff out yes. first. No, no. Now that I am a mom, I understand. It, you know, because I remember telling my mom, and she laughed, and she's like, "Oh, just you wait." <laughs> <laughs> I heard your show with with uh, Anthony Dore and and how you guys were talking about being parents of twins. Yeah, you don't have twins, though, right? No, no. I have yeah. I have two boys five, five years apart. Not oh, boys okay. anymore, but yeah. Five years is a good split, don't you think? What do you, think? you know, it's it's how far apart I was from my sister. It's a little farther than I might have liked, but you know, Mother Nature will have her way. So yes, yes, I have a six year gap, so I understand. But anyway, okay, Vigil Harbor. I watched your interview with the Boston Public Library, oh. which was really fascinating. And one of the things you said was how it was one character from another book. And this is the continuation that the character had landed in Visual Harbor, and that's where you like started this and the launching off point. So tell listeners what Visual Harbor is about, how you decided to bring that particular loop in to start off and, and everything else. Well, first of all, every single one of my books starts with a single character who comes to me. And it may be from a previous book, whether I like it or not. And it actually, in this case, there were sort of two characters. But one for, for the one you're referring to is Celestino, who's a character, very important character in my novel, uh, The Widower's Tale. And in that book, he's an undocumented Guatemalan lawn worker who aspires to have his own tree business. And That novel ends in a town I invented called Vigil Harbor, which is a seaside town in Massachusetts based on the town that I live in, which is called Marblehead. And, you know, you live in a coastal community, so you know, you know, the privileges and the, you know, hazards of what it's like to live by the sea. And so I kept thinking about Celestino through another couple of books, and I wanted to bring him back, but I was also visited by this architect And sometimes when I'm writing a book, I become fascinated by a particular profession. And I think, you know, I really want to write about an oncologist. I really want to write about a concert cellist. And and I'll delve into that. So in my town here, there are a lot of architects. And it's also a town with a lot of historical architecture. And, you know, I'm surrounded by houses built even the 17th century, 18th century, 19th century. and, And I'm fascinated by fantasizing about all the lives that have been lived in these old houses. And I think it draws in a lot of architects as well. So I had this idea about an architect who's in the prime of his profession, who builds houses to withstand 
the increasingly furious coastal storms we have as say as <laughs> Florida yes. is being battered by Ian and everything has gone well for him but there's a secret from his past when he was a young architect in New York City he had a very tempestuous affair with a young woman very artistic intense young woman who presented herself as a creature from the deep, as it were. And I thought, you know, am I really going to go there? You know, is Julia Glass the hyper-realist writer about families and communities and heartbreak and, you know, going to bring something supernatural in? And I thought, you know, maybe she claims to be a mermaid or a selkie. I wasn't even sure, but I thought, so he works in this privileged, beautiful, historic town on the Massachusetts coast and the stranger comes to town, the woman from his past, another woman from his past who he isn't aware knew of him, who was also in love with this young woman, Issa. The relationship came to a very tragic end. So it's so it, it was to be, on the one hand, I really wanted this character Celestino to be, for, you, for the, the reader to see him decades later settled in this seaside town, uh, married with a child, and, and a successful business. And he works with that architect. Now, people are thinking, what is, you know, this is me, you know, what happens inside my head is that characters constellate. And I, I'm utterly incapable of writing a novel from one point of view. That so, was a beautiful sentence, by the way, that should be on a t-shirt. Where characters constellate. Okay. Well, you right, that's really make, cool. the t- make the t-shirt zippy and I'll buy a dozen. Okay. Um, I'll make it. So, so, so I had these these sort of two poles, this this architect with this secret that's going to emerge from his past because this woman who's sort of bent on vengeance, but also wants to find out what became of Issa, this, this passionate young woman who presented herself as this otherworldly creature. And this man who has this very successful business as an arborist. By the way, I'm obsessed with trees. You know, drive me down a street and I'm going to say, what's that tree? What's that tree? I just planted a Tupelo tree in my yard. And I just, I go out and watch it like a baby. Maybe Aww. it's, you know, my displaced motherhood here now that I'm an empty nester. But anyway, so, but, he, but something different happened to me with this novel. And I think it's because I actually became very intimidated by the notion that I was going to try to work in a a fantastical element into my novel. And that is that I stepped aside from that novel and I wrote another novel, which was House Among the Trees, my last book. And I don't do that. It felt like I was having an affair. I left (laughs) my spouse, you know, like I packed my bags and, you know, run off to Spain with with this other novel. So when after A House Among the Trees was published in 2017, I kind of went slinking back toward (laughs) the 75 pages gathering dust on my desktop where Celestino and this architect Austin and Issa, this woman and Petra, the woman, the stranger who comes to town and outs the secret. There they lurked, you know, and I you know, as I joke in my uh, author's note to Vigil Harbor, we went into marriage counseling and (laughs) I salvaged the marriage because I'm a stubborn person and asked my husband. (laughs) But what had happened is it was 2017 and our world had changed a lot in the three or four years since I had left those characters behind. I'll just sort of tell you the story that you maybe heard in that interview. I had to go back and do a little Googling, but this this was June 1st of of 2017. I was actually, I was at pulling into my garden center to buy a tree, as a matter of fact. And (laughs) and NPR was on and everyone was waiting for our our relatively new president to come on the radio. And uh, everyone knew what he was going to say. And I thought, no, he's not going to say that because nobody would say that. And I waited in the parking lot and listened. And yes, our president pulled us out of the Paris Climate Accord. And personally, I feel that 
climate change, I'm hardly the only one, is the most urgent of so many challenges facing us. And I sat in in the parking lot and I cried. I mean, I just thought, do these people have children? Do they have grandchildren? You know, what is going on here? And I thought to myself, what is it like at this moment in time to be a climate scientist or a climate change activist and to feel that everything, all the work you've done is just, you know, roadkill. And I, I thought, what if, what if we reach a time when in order to be heard, those people resort to violence, to, to terrorism? Um, and, and suddenly I thought, here I'm writing a novel about this coastal community, um, which is privileged, you know, I will tell you, and I borrowed this line for one of my characters, my husband jokes about our town that diversity is represented by brunettes. <laughs> that's about true. I mean, it's a politically mostly very liberal town, but you know, be that as it may. So what if I set this novel a dozen years in the future when all those big issues that keep us up at night, immigration and reproductive rights and but climate change, certainly, that, that the volume has been raised on those issues. Things are more dire. Politics is more polarized. There's actually in my novel a new a splinter political party called the End Timers. But I did not want to write a dystopian novel. You know, first of all, dystopia is above my pay grade. You know, I just, <laughs> I, you know, my imagination, my imagination is not very good on technology, for instance. <laughs> you know, I, you know, so my joke about this, I was actually emailing the writer, Karen Russell, whose imagination is yeah. just out where the buses don't run. And I think she's so brilliant. And I said, you know, guess what? I'm, I'm writing something and set in the future. I said, it's baby steps speculative. So what happened is I, I now knew the larger world, the, the, the more dire world in which my privileged community was this kind of bubble in which the people believe in some ways they're insulated from the rising seas because for instance, this town, like my own town, is set up on a sort of granite pedestal. It's not like towns on Cape Cod and, and the mid-Atlantic coast where, I mean, almost daily, you can see the coast eroding and houses going underwater, even regardless of hurricanes. So I kind of knew when and where this novel was set. And then the characters began to gather. And one of the most important characters, and this actually surprised me, you know, I I write forward into the dark. I do not plot a novel. So sometimes characters that I thought were incidental become very important. And one of those characters is the architect Austin's stepson, whose name is Brecht. And his is essentially the first voice you hear in the novel. And he's in his early 20s. He was in New York City for college. And Uh, something very violent happened. He survived a very traumatic event. And so he came home to Vigil Harbor. That was in Union Square, right? Yes. There's a a bombing in Union Square where when I lived in New York City, I went to the farmer's market three times a week. So So Brecht is someone who's who's been traumatized and his life is on hold as he tries to figure out where he's going. And he lives in his father's house with his, his, his mother, I'm sorry, his stepfather, Austin. And he works for Celestino. He works building walls. He works planting trees. And his view of the world in which he lives as a 20-something was really the greatest leap of imagination for me. There's also new language because, of course, in, you, you, do you have teenagers yet? I do. I have two, two, so, 15, two 15 year olds. Come home and use these brand, these adjectives. And you're like, that's not how that word is used, right. especially if you're a, a word monger yes. and you realize this is the language evolving. So I had some fun with Brecht's 
you know, new twists of phrase and so on. But in addition to, to Brecht, who, who becomes in a way, n- not the heart of the novel, but, but he's seeing the world through his eyes is where I really encountered this near future you know, most direct. Most of the other characters are older and I had a little fun with, so that, so Vigil Harbor has a yacht club that is for people very much a social center. And if I tell you that my town has five yacht clubs, now imagine <laughs> if I'd tried that, nobody would believe that a town has five yacht clubs. And, and Zibi, I love visiting book groups and I visit book groups here. And the first question is, which club is it? <laughs> of course, I say, it's a composite. Um, so... Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So anyway, another pair of characters that I really enjoyed writing were Mike, who's, you know, well, Mike and Margo are these two characters, both in their 50s. They've raised their children. They belong to the yacht club. And to their mortification and shock, their spouses leave them for each other and run away to a survivalist community in Wisconsin because there's this whole survivalist movement, as you can imagine. I guess they're called preppers, but I didn't use that term. And so Mike, who's a, who's this very serious marine biologist, and Margot, who's this spitfire of a, of a retired high school English teacher, are thrown together, not romantically, but sort of by virtue of, of being cast in this town scandal. And, and Margot has taught Brecht so there are all these connections among among the characters and Mike's grown son, Egon, who's, who's an actor in New York City, comes home because there's another bombing in New York City. And you're making me so, feel a little a little uneasy sitting here talking to you well, in New York City. I, I'm probably and I'm, I'm giving I'm giving your listeners vertigo. No, because um, so so if I tell you that the novel is narrated by eight characters, seven of those characters are people who live in Vigil Harbor. Perhaps they've lived there their whole lives or they've come there. And then there's this stranger. There's also another stranger who comes to town who's actually another character from a previous novel. But I'm not going to go into that subplot. The events of the novel take place over only a few days, bringing these characters together in an event that that is 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 quite a violent event. I mean, an event that brings 
the dangers of the outer world into this bubble of a town and throws everyone together. But but also, like all of my books, each character is this deep well of experience. And, you know, I call myself the flashback queen because, you know, by the time you finish one of my novels, you know each of my characters all the way back to their childhood. You know their gene pool. You know their struggles to become who they are in whatever profession they're in. So for for readers of mine who who were a little terrified at the thought that I'd, you know, turned into a sci-fi writer, that isn't the case at all. You know, I'm still really writing about how how do how do we endure? You know, I mean, I think all the greatest fiction is about how there's this amazing yin yang in, in human nature of fragility and resilience. And also, I've said this very often, but one of the things that really interests me in fiction is how do, or what happens when, because we know it happens frequently, what happens when people who are fundamentally good-hearted and very smart make incredibly foolish choices in their lives? And how do they deal with the consequences of that? How do they deal with the fallout? You know, you know, can they rise above it? Can they get through it? So, so once again, you know, I am writing about a group of characters who are, you know, confronted with intimate challenges and, and losses and also global issues that are affecting their lives every day, whether they like it or not. And like all of my novels, I, you know, I believe that this book ends hopefully. You know, one bookstore where I did an event said, you know, Julia Glass is amazing and devastating new novel. And I thought, well, thank you for saying it's amazing, but I don't think it's devastating. I mean, it's certainly, it's not the kind of novel that allows you to set aside from your mind the worries we all share as a nation, as as families, as as towns. But maybe it, it allows you to immerse yourself in them in a different way and to see that we will all work our way through these things. I mean, this is not a fairy tale. Everybody doesn't have a happy ending, but this is very much asking myself, how do we get through this? How will we? How could we? I mean, my imagination of the world 12 years from now, because the year that this takes place in is 2034. And by the way, I've been asked by a couple of readers, if I chose that because it's 50 years after 1984? And no, I mean, I am so not a numbers person. I mean, I could now claim, oh yes, of course, you know, it's echoes of George Orwell, but it's not an Orwellian novel. So no. And in fact, you know, there's another novel that came out last fall that I really was riveted by and and admired enormously called 2034 that, and that's the title that imagines that that's the year in which World War III begins. And I thought, well, if that were actually the case in 2034, my characters would have a lot more to worry about than what they're worrying about. Wasn't that Elliot Ackerman's book? Yes, it is. Oh and, my gosh, I you know, love him. He's did, you, did you did you have you interviewed him? I have interviewed him, and oh my his God, his, uh, his partner Lee Carpenter is an old friend of mine from business school. She was the very really? first guest on this podcast, and that's when I realized I loved podcasting was because of Lee. And so I see Lee oh. and Elliot um, quite a bit, although not well, but anyway, yeah. yes, 2034. So, so, so I also, because, you know, I've, I've talked about all the points of view in this book and, and I promise you won't get confused. I promise I steer you straight through all of these, <laughs> these different narrators, but I have to have a little mom brag moment here, Sibby. So always, you no, know, most of my previous books have been narrated by, by single audio readers and audiobooks. though. I, 
I can't listen to an audiobook because my mind wanders. It's a terrible confession. I have to read. <laughs> so, but I have so many friends who are who that's how they get books. They, you know, they listen to them. And and I am, you know, have come to realize over the past 20 years that the audiobook is incredibly and increasingly important. So imagine my shock when the producer told me that they were going to cast nine performers for this audiobook. Because in addition to the eight narrators, there's a there's kind of an omniscient overview that I use sort of that punctuates these voices that kind of gives you a picture of the the sort of long history of this town, Vigil Harbor. And so I, you know, I had the pleasure of being able to ask I mean, that for them to cast a friend of mine who's an actor named uh, Jeremy Davidson, who does audiobooks as well as stage and screen acting. And he he reads Mike, the, the marine biologist, who's, who's for me a really beloved character. Uh, some people think he's the character who's the most like me. My friends love reading my books and saying, this is you, Julie. <laughs> Even though aspects of me are in all of my characters. But at my 25-year-old son, who had graduated from college in, in performance and theater, although the pandemic sent him in another direction, and he is now a farmer, I really heard his voice. He has a beautiful voice as Egon, who is Mike's son, the actor who comes back from New York. Oh, so it's it's actually your son. Well, Mary. so I so that's get this, amazing. you know, I, I say to the producer over the phone, I say, "No, you're going to roll your eyes," but I have this son, and she's like, she just interrupted me and said, "Anyone can send me a tape and try out." And it took him two tapes with her. He get, she gave him notes, and my so my son Alec is one of the voices, and it just, you know, it, it really, you know, did it bring us closer? No, but. <laughs> Did it make me go and read all my books? No. <laughs> so, you know, I had a funny experience where his college roommate who came to us for Thanksgiving asked, you know, I was at the breakfast table with his roommate one morning and my son, I think, was still sleeping. And he said, so I, I, I understand you're an author. And I said, yes. And, you know, he said all the nice things you'd say. He said, but so it's interesting to me that Alec hasn't read any of your books. And I said, <laughs> yeah, that's interesting to me too, because he's a really big reader and he's an actor and he's, you know, been in like six Shakespeare plays. And he said, well, yeah, he told me why it is. And I said, why? And he said, because he's terrified that there may be sex scenes. And the idea that he might read a sex scene written by his mother is just... And I said, you know what? That's a very good reason not to read your mother's books. No. <laughs> yeah. I, not uh, that my books are very racist. No, no. I actually, I had ri- originally written some more steamy scenes in my memoir about my own husband and me. And I was like, I have to take these out. Like well, my kids are going to read this one day. I can't. I can't share. Well, it. the other thing is, I've still got a living mother who reads. So you know, that's the <laughs> other thing. You don't want your mother reading. That's true. That's true. Although I have to say, that's what people want to read. Like a lot of people want to read, have a little bit of that in their. Not in all cases, but in most cases, when I when I write about intimacy, there's you know, it's like the rock and roll fade out. Yeah, bit, exactly. You know? Yeah. No. <laughs> We're watching um, Tembi Locke, her book from scratch. It was just made into a show on Netflix. Oh, wow. I was lucky enough to get the screener because I'm interviewing her. Anyway, there are, I'm watching with my kids and they're loving it because it's in Florence and it's beautiful and cooking and whatever. And then all of a sudden they're keeping these scenes. And so I keep jumping on top of them on the couch. <laughs> and like, like, no, here comes another one. And I just like lunge. Anyway, it's, it's, it's probably a, not a good parenting moment, but anyway. It's, it's, it's lovely what we do for our kids. Right. Well, 
first of all, you are just a genius. You are like a creative, listening to you describe how your mind works and how you craft stories and create characters and interlink them and plots and how you take the things that are bothering you and that you want people to examine and then twist it around and put it into a story because really that's how people think, feel enough to make changes in their own life, right? They can't, I feel like if you read a hundred articles about climate change, you can put them off into one analytic piece of your brain. If you hear one story about one family affected truly by climate change, it might make more of a difference, right? Your ability to tie all that in and, and really affect people and the world, that's the goal, right? It's to get people to re-examine. We're all making decisions every day, right. whether we think we are or not. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's true. And during the writing of this book, I subscribed to the New York Times climate newsletter. So I get those in my inbox. And I have to say, sometimes I think, God, this, you know, I'd start out the day and go, oh, here it is. And I'd read, and but you know what? You read really hopeful things too. And I have to say, and I want I want to say that for especially for parents who have older kids and you wonder how can they want to go forward and make a family? I mean, I have a, a, a 26 year old in a committed relationship, but, and I don't go there with my kids, but <laughs> Ezra Klein in the New York times wrote this beautiful piece called your kids are not doomed. And, and I recommend that op-ed piece to any parent in particular who has older children and wonders, you know, how do you talk about the future? How do you, how do you, how do you feel hopeful? But there is much to be hopeful about. There really is. And I hope that my book is a part of that conversation. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. I know my son, I talked to him about some of this the other day and, he, and there was a whole group of us and he was like, oh yeah, no, we're, we're all like totally screwed for life, basically. Like there's no hope for us. And I'm like, really, do you feel that way? Because no. I don't know that that's necessary. And he's like, no, that's what every, all my friends, like, we're, you know, that's what they all think. That's what this addresses. Also, when when I have those conversations with with my older son, sometimes he's like, you know, and it's your generation that did this to us. And you know, mine. I mean, I'm older than you, Sibby, but um, <laughs> you know, we're a very, very privileged and fortunate generation of Americans. You know, my generation escaped by a few years being drafted for the Vietnam War. Personally, I feel that the war that I was witness to, because I I was very close to it and I did volunteer work, is the you know, the AIDS epidemic in, in New York City. Yep. I was right square in the middle of that, but I wasn't personally affected by it. But no, he's right. I mean, I cannot argue with him that the excesses in which my generation, that I that we perpetrated are very real. But of course, my generation is still around to try to help amend that. And, and his generation, you know, the ingenuity, uh, you know, not just the resilience, but the ingenuity of human beings is, is incredible. And you know, I, I I see that our time is drawing to a close, but I want to say that while I was, I'll just tell you one little story here. You know, while I was sort of getting ready for this book to come out and I was in this kind of nervous state, I was looking around my bookcase one day and I saw this book I picked up at a cash register and it's called The World According to Fred Rogers. So in a way we go back yep. to yep. children. And, you know, it's these gems that Mr. Rogers said over his lifetime. And I opened it up to one and it was, he said, parents sometimes ask me when something catastrophic is happening and their children see that catastrophe, whether it's on TV, you know, whether it's a hurricane yep. or terrorist bombing. And, and I was there with a five-year-old in New York City, 9-11. He said, what you say to the children is look for the fixers wherever you see catastrophe, whether it's the Red Cross, whether it's FEMA, you know, whether it's Anthony Fauci on TV, you know, there are always people whose whole heart 
and whole life, you know, is dedicated to fixing, to getting around, getting through, enduring that. And I thought maybe that sounds simple, but it's not. And that's where my attention, that's where I want to draw the attention in in my book and, you know, in my parenting. There are always people working as hard as they possibly can to make things better. And I like to think fiction writers are among those people. I think so too. (laughs) Julia, this was so great. I could listen to you all day. You're such a masterful storyteller. Seriously, to listen to you is a privilege. So thank you for coming on. Well, thank you. I had a great time. Good. Me too. All right. Good luck with the rest of your tour. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 